0: Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, an excursus on natural theology, part 29. For more resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.
1: We've been looking at epistemological objections to belief in God, and last time we examined the atheist objection that in the case of God, there is no evidence for God's existence. And therefore, belief in God is unjustified. We should believe that God does not exist. There is a sort of presumption of atheism. Atheism is the default position unless and until there is adequate evidence to prove God's existence. And I argued that this mistakenly equates the absence of evidence with evidence of absence. And that you can't always do that. Indeed, there are certain conditions that need to be fulfilled in order for the absence of evidence to count as evidence of the absence of something. Namely, the first condition we saw is that we have fully canvassed the area where the evidence ought to be found. And secondly, that if the entity did exist, then we should expect to find more evidence of its existence than the evidence that we do have. And in order for the atheist to justify um, his belief that God does not exist, he would need to prove to us that both of these conditions are fulfilled. And that puts a whole new face on the so called presumption of atheism. We see now it's not a default position at all. Indeed, it would involve the atheist. In some pretty heavy burden of proof. He would have to show that both of these conditions are fulfilled, which I at least would argue he cannot. And so the debate over the lack of evidence for God has morphed in recent years among contemporary philosophers into a discussion of the so called hiddenness of God, the hiddenness of God. This is in effect a discussion of the probability or the expectation that God, if he existed, would have given us more evidence of his existence than that which we have. It is an attempt to show that second condition is fulfilled. Now, certainly God could have made his existence much more evident than he has. the question here, I think, is going to depend largely on your perspective on natural theology. If you're convinced that God has left adequate evidence uh, of his existence, evidence which is pretty convincing to an open minded and informed person, then I think you're apt to be skeptical that we should expect to see much more evidence of his existence than the evidence that we do have. And Indeed, when you read the people who push this objection based on the hiddenness of God, you will find inevitably that they just assume that there are no good arguments for God's existence. So it is no wonder that they think that God is hidden. They don't believe that any of the arguments of natural theology are any good. But if, as I have argued, we have good arguments for the existence of God, then God isn't so hidden after all and it is not so evident that if God did exist he would give more evidence of his existence than that which he has given. Now, Some atheists, um, unsatisfied with the amount of evidence that we have, have argued that if God existed then he would have prevented the unbelief of the world by making his existence just starkly obvious. For example, he could have inscribed on every atom in the universe, made by God. Or he could have placed a neon cross in the heavens saying, Jesus saves. and In that case, God's existence would be starkly apparent to everyone, and thereby he would have prevented the unbelief in the world. But I think we need to ask ourselves in response to this objection why God should want to do such a thing as that. Paul Moser is a contemporary Christian philosopher who has rightly emphasized that on the Christian perspective God really isn't all that interested in simply getting people to believe that he exists. Rather, as Moser says, what God's interested in is building a love relationship with us, not simply getting people to add one more item to their inventory of what exists. The Bible says in James 2:9 that even the demons believe that God exists and tremble because they don't have a saving relationship with God and it's that saving personal relationship with him that God is interested in building not simply getting people to believe that he exists as the demons do now of course in order to believe in God that is to trust in him to know him you've got to first believe that God exists but If you reflect on it, there is really no reason at all to think that if God were to make his existence starkly obvious that more people would freely come to know him and his salvation than actually do. Mere showmanship will not bring about a change of heart. That is the lesson of Jesus' parable in Luke 16 verses 30 and 31. Where you remember, Abraham tells the rich man in Hades, who asks him to send someone from the dead to his family members so that they'll believe and not come to this place. And Abraham says, even if someone will rise from the dead, if they won't listen to Moses and the scriptures, neither would they believe in that case. Just seeing a miraculous event isn't going to bring about heart change if these people are closed to God and his word. and It is interesting as you read the Bible that it describes the history of God's interaction with humanity in terms of a sort of progressive interiorization, if I can coin a word, a progressive interiorization of God's interaction with people. With an increasing emphasis upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our inner person. For example, in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, When we cry, Abba, Father, it's the Spirit Himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So there's this progressive interiorization of God's interaction with humanity. In the Old Testament God is described as revealing himself to his people in manifest wonders. The plagues upon Egypt, the pillar of fire and smoke that followed Israel, the parting of the Red Sea. But did these wonders produce lasting heart change in the people? No. Israel fell into apostasy again and again with tiresome repetitiveness. So if God were to inscribe his name on every atom in the universe or place a neon cross in the sky, people might well believe that he exists. But how can we be confident that this would lead to a greater love of God, a knowledge of God? perhaps over time people would begin to chafe under these brazen advertisements of God's existence and even come to resent him for such in-your-face effrontery. In fact, we just don't really have any way of knowing that in a world of free creatures in which God's existence is as plain as the nose on your face, That the number or the percentage of people who come to love him and to know and experience his salvation is any greater than that in the actual world where, remember, the actual world includes not simply the past and the present but also the future. But then it seems to me the claim that if God existed he would make his existence more evident or starkly obvious just has little or no warrant. And that undermines the claim, I think, that in the absence of such evidence, that is itself positive evidence that God does not exist. Any response or question on the question of the hiddenness of God? Yes, over
2: here. Throughout Scripture, we, get the, uh, we understand that God is concerned with free will. So I think that when we talk about this, we have to assume that God is... In some way, he's trying to – he makes a careful balance because he wants there to be enough evidence that people can accept him with their own free will. But also, he doesn't want to make it necessarily as plain as day so that, you know, people can reject him. And I think that the only – I think the only reason why it's not more evident than it is is because the only way that God – could make it more evident than it already is, is that he would in some way have to interfere with free will. Uh,
1: this is a, a reply that's often made to the hiddenness of God, and I think there is truth in it. Obviously, any revelation of God's existence would have to be freedom permitting if he's not to turn us into puppets or robots. And that was why I said that it's not clear that in a world of free creatures, that even if God's existence were as manifest as the nose on your face that more would come to know him and love him. I do think that it would be consistent with human freedom for God to make his existence more obvious than he has. In the Old Testament the revelations in parting the Red Sea and the pillar of fire and smoke and the other miracles that Israel witnessed didn't remove Israel's free will. And that's evident from the fact that they continually apostatized. But neither were they effective in winning the love and the heart commitment of the people. So, while the God needs to be hidden enough that he doesn't overwhelm our free will, I think that's quite right. That, that may happen in heaven when we have the vision of Christ and we no longer see through a veil or in a, in a glass darkly. But in this world God's existence needs to be hidden in such a way as to be consistent with human freedom. But I would also say he could still make his existence a lot more obvious than he has if he wanted to that would be consistent with freedom. But what the atheist doesn't know and cannot provide any reason to think is that in such a world there would be a greater degree of people who love and come to know God than in the actual world. Yes, Kurt.
3: Well, I am very loath to disagree with you, Dr. Craig.
1: Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, I hear your butt coming.
3: Okay. It just, it, the scriptures plainly say that from Nebuchadnezzar to Paul, human freedom does not enter into when God wants to make known himself to people, he overrules whatever it is that they thought they knew or believed mm-hmm. to the point where maybe God's hiddenness is his purpose to reveal himself to certain people in his own timing rather than, if I reveal myself to you, you might reject me. Because in no instance in the scripture no, wait, 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 that I... Wait, wait, wait,
1: Kurt. You said, if I revealed myself to you, you might reject me.
3: Yeah, I'm not so saying... So you,
1: you are saying then it's no, consistent
3: not, with human freedom. No, no, no. That's what I'm objecting to. Oh, you're objecting. Okay. Oh, yes. I'm saying that instead... He is revealing himself to people in the time that he purposes, yeah. because in my reading of the scripture, at no time has he revealed himself directly to someone and they've rejected him.
1: Well, what about Israel? The, they, the examples I gave of the Red Sea, the plagues
3: on Egypt. But, but the, you're saying that they, when I say reject, I don't mean that, oh, as if the atheist rejects him and says he doesn't exist. They just Stray like we do right now we believe him okay. we believe that he exists we love him but we still okay. stray but i'm saying at no time in the scripture does he reveal himself and i guess respect human freedom like in the case with nebuchadnezzar or with okay. paul and say well i don't want to reveal myself to them because they might even reject the fact that i god exists
1: okay that wasn't my point kurt in okay. fact that was that was what i was disagreeing with in response to zach I think that, as you say, God sometimes does reveal himself so powerfully that there can be no doubt that he exists. But that doesn't remove the human freedom to reject a relationship with him. Uh, So Paul saw the vision of Jesus on the Damascus Road. But what does he say in response to that? He says, therefore I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but went ahead and, and went to Ananias and so forth. So Paul, even though he had this vision of Christ, I don't think it was freedom removing. It may have made it very clear that, that Christ had appeared to him, but the decision to trust in Christ, to follow him, to be his disciple, Paul still had that freedom to be disobedient. And That's what I'm arguing is that, the, that God's concern, as Moser said, isn't just in getting us to believe that he's out there. Even the demons believe that. What God wants to do is get us saved. He wants to get us to trust and to love him. And there's no reason to get people simply to believe that he exists if it's not going to produce this kind of relationship in the end. God is perfectly justified not to give such a stark revelation of himself.
3: But then are you saying then that human freedom can overrule God's intention to get us to love him? That at some point Uh, that he could reject?
1: Yes. Okay, now this gets into, I think I I understand where you're coming from. When we get to the doctrine of justification, you'll see that I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not a reformed theologian in that sense. I disagree with people like Luther and Calvin that God unilaterally saves us and we have no choice in the matter. I would be more of an arminian or molinist or wesleyan who thinks that we have the ability to repudiate God's grace and to to reject him should we so choose. And so that will be discussed later on, but you're right from the calvinist From the Calvinist perspective I mean, what the Calvinists would just say is that God doesn't want to save everybody. He doesn't want to save some and so he passes over them and they are called the reprobate. So the elect, God will manifest himself to them in such a way that they will certainly be saved, inevitably be saved, but the rest he just passes over them and lets them go to hell. He doesn't really want to save them. that would be the Calvinist solution to the hiddenness of God, but I personally find that solution abhorrent and inconsistent with the nature of an all-loving God who wants as many as possible to be saved. But that's uh, pulling a you know, the opening of Pandora's box, obviously. So let's move on to the next question. Yes.
0: Hey, Dr. Craig, my name is Pat. And it's my first time here, and it's an honor to meet you.
1: Thank you. Good to have you introduced Where are you from?
0: Uh, I'm from Tequila. I'm a longtime fan. I've watched many of your debates and uh, have uh, really enjoyed your apologism and, and your success uh, that has moved so many. Wonderful. And Thank you. My comment is on atheism. When the atheists claim lack of evidence, uh, it's... I think they're claiming a willful ignorance oh. because the evidence is present. Mm-hmm. There's arguments, mm-hmm. natural law, and even in the case of the multiverse, uh, it cannot withstand the contingency argument. Uh, and you can make an argument out of the multiverse. For instance, if the multiverse exists, then everything that is possible exists. God is possible, therefore God <laughs> yeah. exists.
1: I think that what you're saying is the point that I also wanted to affirm, and that is that there is ample evidence for God's existence if we're simply willing to look at it with an open mind and an open heart. I, I do think that. And in reading the literature on the hiddenness of God, you find these folks just assume that none of these arguments is any good. And I, whether that's willful ignorance or the, the, that they've actually looked at them but they're unconvinced, I couldn't say. But they don't interact with them. They don't show that they're no good. They don't refute them. So it does make you wonder why? What's the justification for this assumption that seems to underlie this argument about the hiddenness of God?
0: And I deal with atheists a lot. And even in the presentation of the evidence, they will just outright ignore it. They will not. Mm. And, I mean, I, I can't help you
1: if you're going to be willfully ignorant on the matter. Yeah, yeah. There, then you have to trust the Holy Spirit to open their hearts. Well, I, I, yeah. I fight them. We get down the road. <laughs> Okay. George Weaver has a question.
4: Bill, I think I know your answer to this question, but just for our benefit. It does seem like in Scripture, Old and New Testaments, that the major characters often
1: had God personally speak to them or, you know, provide a message to them audibly through visions, appearances of angels and so forth. We don't seem, at least I haven't seen that today. Does that make God more hidden for us than it was for them? And is that a problem? I agree with you, George, that we don't have prophets today in the same way that they did in the Old Testament. John the Baptist seems to be have been the last of those prophets before Christ came. So we don't have speak, people speaking revelation from God today, speaking the word of the Lord. And those who do claim that I think are spurious. So I haven't had visions or God speaking to me in the way that you describe either such as we have in the Old Testament say to Ezekiel or to Isaiah. And Yes, I think that's problematic in the sense that we would say if God really wants people to come to know him then why doesn't he do that more? And I think what I've just said would be my answer to that, that this kind of thing isn't just effective if it's mere showmanship, but that God through the ministry and witness of the Holy Spirit does have this kind of interior assurance and ministry in our lives that is adequate for those who are not willfully ignorant of this, who, who reject him. And so there is adequate grounds in, in the work of the Spirit for us today.
5: Yeah, and I thought you would also say we have scripture, which they did not, written scripture, inspired by God. Good point.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Bruce.
5: I'll borrow uh, a quick uh, note from Joyce Myers, who's, I think, one of the best practical theologians around. (laughs) uh, She said that there's a trust issue, and trust and faith always involve unanswered questions. So we're always going to have a certain amount of that in order to have a trust and faith in God. That's
1: one of the... I understand. My only reservation is that I think that even if you are absolutely certain that God exists... Uh, as I say, it's manifest, it's plain as the nose on your face. I think that the trust issue still arises, exactly. that it's still there. Yeah, uh, y- absolutely. You don't need uncertainty in order for the faith or the trust issue to be an issue. So that also, once you've mm-hmm. come to believe that God exists, the question still remains, am I going to be his disciple? Am I going to love him and bow the knee and obey him? And as I say, Israel in the Old Testament had no doubt about the first question that God exists, that Yahweh had delivered them from Egypt. But the trust question still remained.
5: Yeah, well, I, I agree. We got a couple of dimensions on that, and then also an example of uh, overt rejection in, in light of, of uh, supernatural evidence is the raising of Lazarus. When, when yes, Lazarus was yes, not, not only did they want to kill. Jesus after they saw but they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Yeah it
1: bears out doesn't it what Jesus said in that parable in Luke 16. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets neither will they believe even if someone rose from the dead. And here comes Lazarus They were both Lazarus. Say, they try to kill him. Okay behind Bruce there is a question. The
5: scripture says God is the same yesterday today and forever and I think so is human nature. And so therefore if you go back to the beginning uh, Adam and Eve seem to have a revelation of
1: God. And uh, there was still a decision that had to be made that they didn't yeah. make. That Wonderful pursuit. example. I mean, who could have been more certain that God existed than Adam and Eve? Yeah. So go back and yet, to, they chose not to believe, yeah, even not though they obey. had a
5: direct revelation. And the deception, to me, conveys maybe she wanted to do something to be more like God. But the deception, there's still a choice of trust, and she chose yeah, not to.
1: Yeah. Good, good example. Thank you. Steve, to your right there, there's uh, a
4: question. That we want to pick up in the corner. Hi, Dr. Craig Mark Allen. Uh, Hi, Dr. Craig. I agree with you that, that the evidence for God is so strong, it's like the nose on your face that He exists. There's no there's no issues on that. Uh, the difficulty, and and quite honestly, for the Israelites, the, sa- the, the same thing. It was so obvious that God existed that wasn't the question. Uh, the the problem becomes that. Uh, in people's daily lives, they see uh, difficulties, they experience hunger, they experience yeah. pain, etc. So the, the, that is what causes people to, que- to even ignore the fact uh, that there's evidence for God. So, uh, what is your thinking on the premise that we are actually here to experience? pain, and difficulty as part of God's plan. That forms the perfect segue (laughs) to the
1: next section, which is on the problem of suffering and evil. But, so as not to preempt further questions on this topic, I won't make that transition yet, but we will.
4: Yeah, Cody. Yeah, so one of the <clears throat> one of the main points you were defending is the idea that it, it may not be necessarily true that just because like say God were to reveal himself, make himself more obvious and more people came to believe that he existed, yeah. that therefore more people would come into a loving, saving relationship. Well, a lot of atheists I talk to, they really resist that. They It's basically like, like, surely, you think of all the people that don't believe, like surely, like if God revealed himself plainly to everyone, that surely more people would come to a saving relationship. Doesn't it just seem obvious? Yeah, it's that? not obvious, and though, then, is it? I mean... And I guess they kind of use that to sort of put the burden of proof back on us. Like I was saying, you show me how that's true. Oh, no. They, that, they claim is, it's a...
1: Remember here, Cody, this is important. Don't let them shift the burden of proof. We're looking at arguments for atheism. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, we bore our share of the burden of proof when we gave arguments for God. And now it's the atheist's turn. He needs to show that if God really did exist then he ought to be making his existence much, much more manifest than he is. and That I think objection is defeated by saying you don't have any reason at all to think that in a world in which God's existence was perfectly obvious that this would lead to greater salvation and love of God. In fact, as I said, I wouldn't have any reason to doubt that in such a world people might actually come to resent God more. Because it would be so in your face that they would um, be more unbelieving, or in the sense of trusting in him. So the atheist has got the burden of proof here, and, and I don't think he can give any argument.
4: Well, one thing I, one attempt I have heard someone say was that, you know, you take someone like a Muslim, they're already a, mono, they're already a theist of sorts, yeah. you know, they believe in God, well, surely like if God just, you know, plainly revealed himself to them, surely a Muslim could easily just, oh, switch over and just be, believe in the Christian God instead.
1: Well, you know how hard it is <laughs> for Muslims to become right? Christians. It's, it's enormously difficult to make that transition. Right. Some do, and some do through visions and dreams of Jesus. But we don't have any knowledge to say, well, if God gave more dreams and visions that more would come to know him. We, we just don't have any way of knowing that. It may be that this world that God has chosen is the one in which um, he is most effective in bringing people to himself through the ways in which he has revealed himself. And Even if he could get more people to believe that he exists, that, that doesn't show that it would result in greater salvation.
6: Yes, Taylor. So if more evidence, I, I take it this under a Christian worldview or Christian theology, this will matter more, but I want to hear your uh-huh. take on this. Um, so if providing more evidence for God's existence or having more reasons to believe in God doesn't help people come to a loving relationship with God, then what is the purpose of natural theology uh, under under
1: that? Yeah, I think that God can use this in the lives of those who are open to it and receptive. And I take very seriously that God wants as many people as possible to be saved. And so he knows the right degree of revelation of himself to give so as to maximize the number of persons in the world who will come to love and know him. Um, and so these arguments would be part of the way in which he does that, but we're not in a position to say that if he were there, he would give more. Yes,
7: I actually have a huge problem with the uh, people saying that atheism is kind of the 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 set position that everybody's born with. I don't. I don't. It, 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 I haven't seen a study that shows that way or or, or or the opposite, but in my own experience and, and what I've seen in other people around me is I started out believing that there was something. Yeah. Um, when I became an atheist, it was when I thought that I was so smart that I didn't have to believe in that. It was foolish to believe in that. And I, and I think um, from what I've seen, I think most people kind of start with they believe in something, children believe in something, and, and then somebody either snuffs it out of them or they snuff it out of themselves, and they, they get some kind of chronological snobbery where they look back on everybody who's ever believed in God, whether it be our founding fathers of the country or the people in the Bible, and they say, oh, well, they're just, they're, they live in a, a non technological, non philosophical genius world where they, 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 sure. can, they have to believe in God because they're ignorant. But, but uh, and, and I, going back to what he said, I think that you kind of build up walls. Um, towards believing in God that way. And I think that is why natural theology is, is useful because it kind of tears down those walls and then lets the Holy Spirit, lets Jesus in, yeah. and then you can do the rest okay. of the work through the Bible. But just in my personal experience, I don't think that it's the set. I don't think that people are born atheists. I think people are born to know that God exists and then they, they trick themselves out of it somehow or somebody else and does there, there's actually scientific data
1: to support that. Um, I remember seeing a sociological study of Japanese children who are not raised in a theistic culture and yet tended to have a belief in God in these very young children until it got, as you say, rubbed out. Um, Many people who are working on child psychology think that uh, belief in some sort of God or agency is hardwired into the human brain. So I think you're quite right in in saying that atheism is not uh, something that you're born with. Um, it's something that's arrived at later. But that's not really the issue here. I'm not suggesting, or nor is the atheist suggesting, that it's a default position in that sense. But the issue here is that if there were a God, would he have made his existence a lot more obvious than it is? And um, I don't see any reason to think that when we remember that his position. His desire is not simply to get people to believe that he is, exists, but to bring people into a personal saving relationship with him. Yes? I really think that was a great comment, because I remember my own life that hmm. uh, uh, I believed very, very truly as a young person. I remember meeting the first person I ever that ever said, no, I don't think there is a guy. I was shocked. Oh. Yeah. And as I went through life, I got smarter and smarter and smarter to the point where I overcame the need to believe in God. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought back, um, I'm going to follow up on my comment on cats. Oh, uh, be, be, uh, you're very bold. <clears throat> yes. I, I looked back, and, I, and my parents told me there was a Santa Claus, and I remember when I found out there wasn't, I went, they lied to me? Yeah. So I want to follow up with cats and say Santa Claus <laughs> is a bad thing to teach chil- <laughs> children about because yeah. Uh, yeah, then it turns out to be a lie, you know? Yeah, so. I, I actually did a question of the week on that on our website, oh, uh, right. Brad, if you Google that, where I, I agree with you. I think that it, it's terribly prejudicial Theism when your children find out you've been lying to them about this mythological figure. And I think there are ways to celebrate Christmas that take advantage of Santa Claus by talking about the real St. Nicholas, the church father, and what he did and how people now pretend that he comes on Christmas Eve to visit the children. And we can play this game. We can make believe and, and fantasize about this, but it's not. It's not literally true. Children love to make believe. And so you can, you can still have fun with Santa. You don't have to be a Grinch. But my goodness, we shouldn't, I think, as you say, lie to our children, lest they think, have they been lying to me about Jesus and God? Was there another question or comment? Yes, Bob.
5: According to the famous passage in Romans 1, apparently in God's mind, he has given us sufficient arguments. Because here in 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So in his mind, he's given enough. So a little man can get together and say, oh, maybe he should have given more, but they're not God. Now, the next thing, too... The reason most people don't come to God is not because they don't believe in him. It's because they hate him. They're unregenerate. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. That, in essence, is what Armageddon is. It started out at the Tower of Babel and has progressed to Armageddon, where God has finally had enough with unregenerate mankind, which has grown more and more and more. As J. Vernon McGee uh, used to say, he was a famous pastor. He still, He died years ago, but he's around the world through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee people that say they have an intellectual problem with God, that's most of the time a
1: lot of baloney. What they've got is a sin problem. They don't want to give up what it would take to follow God. Well, I think you're right, Bob, that that is what Romans 1.20 clearly says. It says that God has made his existence so evident in the created world that people are without excuse. It couldn't be much plainer than that. And so the atheist would have to show that if God existed, he would make his existence more obvious than what he has. And I just, that, that's just sheer speculation on his part. It's conjecture. There's no reason to think that. Yes?
6: Just sort of to, to glom on to, to that comment, you know, when we're talking about why wouldn't God make his existence more obvious, I think he's made it pretty obvious, but so many people don't see it. So my analogy is I have a husband and three boys, so I spend a lot of time uh, finding lost things, helping look for backpacks, <laughs> the husband keys, is included in that. Uh, shoes, um, wallets, and and so the, you know the keys are on the counter or the backpack is on the counter, and oh mommy or Suzanne, I can't find it, huh. and it's right there. It is right there, and it's not that my vision is better. In fact, I probably have the worst eyes in the house. So huh. why do I see it? That's right there and no one else can find it.
1: What's He's, the answer?
6: So, well, so so yeah.
7: <laughs>
6: okay. So 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 my question is it's it's not that it was more it, it wasn't it didn't suddenly pop out of the sofa. Right. W- w- when I saw it, it it was it was in the same place and we all had the opportunity to see it, but yeah. only I saw it. So yeah. that that implies that the obviousness could be the same to everyone, but some people don't see it, whether they choose not to see it, or they're blinded to it. or
1: Yeah. To try to draw a spiritual analogy then, you could say that in some way you were more attuned to seeing these things, whereas these other folks, even though they were right there, they didn't see them. Similarly, one could be more attuned to seeing God uh, in the way he's revealed himself, whereas people who are hardened or as Romans 1 says, darkened, in the intellect would suppress this truth and not want to see it. Okay, another comment down here.
2: Uh, So I definitely agree that at least at the point where the gospel has been presented, the reason it's rejected is more moral than it is intellectual, and I think that's affirmed pretty clearly in John chapter 3, and it says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, Mm. and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so it it gives a causal connection between evil deeds and rejecting of the light. Yeah. So I think you're definitely right that that atheism is a moral issue. I guess anti-theism is more of a moral issue if you draw that distinction between non-belief and disbelief. And so, I mean, that's my main comment. I wanted to affirm that that is true. Uh, And then I approach that truth, like, I come from the reform perspective. I'm not going to ask this in a way that brings it into the Calvinistic versus Armenian view of regeneration, uh, if I can avoid it. If I can't, you're free to not answer, obviously. <laughs> <easily. laughs> uh, <laughs> so I guess um, when I'm doing apologetics to a non-believer especially, uh, and I think apologetics is more for the believer than it is for the non-believer uh, at a certain point, but when I'm doing it to a non-believer, I have to approach it in those terms, and that's where I have to trust the Spirit of God to regenerate the person on His own account, uh, rather than my ability to persuade. Um, yes. And so my my objective then becomes present the gospel correctly, rather than present it persuasively. I guess.
1: Whoa. Well, now, wait a minute. But that doesn't need to be mutually exclusive. You can I wouldn't do say both.
2: It's, I wouldn't say it's mutually exclusive. Right, I don't no. know that at all. So I think it's a different point of emphasis. Yeah, I agree with you. Said that
1: apart from the Spirit of God. These arguments would fall like water on the stone.
2: Yeah, that's what I'm. Because the natural part.
1: man doesn't receive the things yeah. of the Spirit of God. So, of course, you're absolutely right that the Spirit of God needs to move in the hearts of unregenerate people to yeah. get them to look at the evidence and yeah. to use the evidence as a means of persuading them. God can use arguments and evidence as a means of drawing people to himself in the same way that he can use preaching.
2: Absolutely. To draw I would people. Yeah, I just kind of want to bring it up just cuz No, uh, you were
1: making a good point.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't disagree like they're definitely not mutually exclusive. I just know from my experience sometimes like and that's the source of any frustration that I get uh, in an argument is they're not being persuaded. I just have to always remind myself it's not up to me to necessarily persuade. It is up to me to present them clearly and yeah. truthfully. Uh, I think that's That's always been an encouraging uh, thing for me. Yeah, I Um, I think you're right. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, had
1: a slogan. He said, success in witnessing is simply sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. And I think that something similar can be said of apologetics, that success in apologetics is simply sharing sound and persuasive arguments in the power of the Holy Spirit and then leaving the results to God. It is not up to you to bring about the result. Well, Let's close with a word of prayer with the uh, promissory note that we will return to this question of the problem of suffering uh, and evil which is the most important argument against the existence of God that is out there. Let's have a word of prayer to close. Father, thank you that you love us and that you have made your existence obvious to us in nature through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the inner witness of your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. Help us to walk in the fullness of your spirit this week as we seek to do your will and to bring glory and honor to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
2: The copyright for the content of this
1: recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.